Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Zimmerman with Becker's Healthcare. Thank you for tuning in to the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Robert Jamison. Dr. Jamison is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon and is fellowship trained in total joint replacement focusing on the hip and knee. He currently practices at the Orthopedic Specialty Center of Northern California in Roseville. Dr. Jamison completed his orthopedic surgery residency at Michigan State University in Garden City. Following residency, he completed his fellowship training at the Joint Replacement Institute in Los Angeles. In 2014, Dr. Jamison performed the first outpatient total joint replacement in all of Northern California and continues to provide a frictionless patient experience throughout their hip or knee recovery journey. He's a strong advocate for advancing the field of orthopedics, especially in the realms of outpatient joint replacement, perioperative pain control, and cutting-edge technology. Outside of his medical commitments, his interests include spending time with his wife and four children, sports, and serving in the community. Dr. Jamison is fluent in Italian, which he learned while serving as a missionary in Northwestern Italy for two years. Dr. Jamison, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Brian. appreciate uh, you guys taking the time and uh, looking forward to this podcast. Yeah, let, let's dive in. So uh, can we start with an overview of the trends you've seen with total knee procedures? Why is the transition to the ASC so important for this procedure? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was at a meeting one time not too long ago, and uh, one of the the speakers that was there was kind of a keynote uh, speaker that was in his probably early 90s, late 80s, and he was talking about when he first started training and and um, when he was in medical school, and he remembers that the the patients would stay in the hospital for six months. And, you know, he said he's seen the tra- and the transition when they went to three months, they thought, you know, we're going to lose a lot of people because of, you know, they didn't know if these, if the bodies would reject these implants, what was going to happen. Then he saw it go to, you know, one month and then he saw it to go to two weeks and then three to five days. And now he sees them go to outpatient. And I think one of the things that we have learned is that patients do very well um, with these, you know, one of the reasons that I went into orthopedic surgery is because I, we really get a deal for the most part, especially in total joints. Uh, with healthy people. And so you take somebody that's healthy that just has a bad hip or knee. And um, once we replace that hip or knee, they're still healthy and they can get up and move and they can get back active again. And I think with advancements in um, the physical therapy side of things, with our technique during surgery, with our some of our perioperative uh, medications, especially on the pain side that we were talking about today, I think that's what's allowed us to be able to do these on, on an outpatient setting and, and uh, really for these patients to do well. Um, it's really nice for them to be able to sleep in their own bed that same night and not have to have an, a hospital stay. Yeah. And as you laid out sort of um, these procedures have, have come a long way it advanced uh, so far, but you know, what, what barriers maybe still remain? What barriers have you seen in terms of moving total needs to the ASC setting? Well, I think that uh, a few of them, one of them is health of a patient. I think that's the key. I think to really make sure the patients have good outcomes, you have to make sure that they're ready physically and mentally for the surgery and also socially. They've got to have a good um, social infrastructure at home, somebody that's going to be able to be there to help take care of them, um, whether it's family, whether it's a friend that can be there with them on a, for, for a little while after that surgery. Um, and then some of the preoperative, you know, kind of the preoperative preparation, them get, knowing what they're getting into and knowing what they're going to have to do afterwards. We do a lot of work in our practice with um, um, preoperative physical therapy. Um, so we call it kind of prehab where they really learn their physical therapy and what they're going to be doing 
before surgery so that way it's an easy transition afterwards. So I think that that's a big part of it. I think the other part is, um, you know, you don't want people to go home and have complications. That'll re- that that you know, if you have a complication after one of these at your surgery center, it's going to ruin your kind of drive to do these there, but also ruin your the the I guess the um, the overall quality that you have. But you know, give you a little bit of stage fright to continue to do them. So you want people to be really prepared for it, um, especially now that Medicare allows these on an outpatient basis as well. Some patients still don't qualify for it, but I think if you have the right patient um, with the right attitude, with the right health, and with the right social setting, I think that uh, uh, moving these to the surgery center have been, um, for my practice, has been has been huge. So um, it's been a huge part of my practice, but also for these patients, it's been um, really great to see the experience that they have. You know, I started my practice, and that's one of the things that I really try to focus on is, is a patient experience. And I think this allows me to control that experience a little bit better um, and help people recover, I think, uh, I think better. You know, when they're sleeping in their own bed that same night, I think they, they sleep better. They're not getting, you know, woken up throughout the night um, because of protocols at the hospital and or, you know, things beeping or things that are, uh, you know, lights that are coming on or, pay, or nurses or techs coming in and, and getting vital signs. So and I think taking some of those barriers away. But again, it has to be the right patient. It has to be. Um, the right setting for them. Thank you so much. And, and something you said sort of stuck out to me, which is sort of um, thinking about how to prepare patients for for these types of procedures or setting expectations. And yeah. that made me think about sort of like uh, pain management's got to factor into that too, right? Um, I, I, I'm curious then if we could talk about pain management and it's a big concern for both patients and, and surgeons. So how, how have you addressed pain management, sort of setting expectations with patients and also, you know, just addressing pain in an effective way? Yeah, I think it's probably the biggest um, hurdle to, for patients to, co- to get over. Everybody hears about knee replacements and how painful they are, even shoulder replacements. I don't do shoulder replacements, but, you know, everybody hears about shoulder surgery and how painful it is. And, and I think that's the biggest stress that patients have going into this. That's definitely the biggest stress. When I see them in their preoperative visit, that's probably the question that I get the most often is, okay, what do I do with my pain medicines? How do I take them? Um, you know, and they don't want to be in pain. They don't know if they're going to be in, you know, agony or they're going to be, you know what, it, you know, they can handle it. Um, I think that, you know, on, on the flip side of that, we also know that patients are worried about getting addicted. Um, I have a lot of patients that that almost refuse or really, really don't want to take any pain medicines because they're worried about being addicted. And some of these patients are in their 80s. You know, it's not like these are you know all young people that are, that, and and they're not seeking drugs, but they're they're scared of getting the, their body addicted to it. So I think that um, the pain management is probably one of the biggest things um, that makes a surgeon nervous to start doing outpatient surgeries, but also for patients worrying about going home and not having you know, maybe some IV options for themselves. But I think that, uh, and what I've seen and one of the big focuses of my practice and really, you know, research that I do is, is this perioperative pain control. Because if you can get patients comfortable, then especially those first three to five days, what, what all the data that we've seen and we research is that if you can get them to first, through those first three to five days after surgery, then it typically their, their pain's pretty well controlled, pretty well managed after that. Um, it's those first, those first few, few days where they're having that, that's, what's kind of pushed me towards, um, you know, blocks and being able to do, do these during the surgery 
So then that way I've got kind of an adjunct and it's a multimodal approach for sure with oral medications, with injections, with blocks that uh, I think give me the confidence and the patient's confidence to be able to go home and feel that they can, that they're going to be able to go home and handle their pain and they're not going to be in agony that they can't ever catch up with. So, so let's sort of um, home in on the, uh, this 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 perioperative pain management, right? Can, can you sort of expand or, or share some more details around your pain management protocol and, and maybe share some results that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we've been studying this a lot. Again, since I started uh, my practice, this is one of my areas of focus. I think because of my drive to do more outpatient surgeries, um, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, one of them is lifestyle. You know, when you have patients in the hospital for three to five days and they're, you know, when you're having a round on them, and that's the way it was in training, you know, and, uh, but it's really come a long ways over the last probably 10 years to be able to do more of these outpatient surgeries. And, and, um, but pain is, is probably one of the biggest things I think that keeps people in the hospital. Um, after surgery, when we had them three to five days, that was one of the things that kept them longer and longer was getting their pain under control. So with my practice, we, we still give people pain medications, oral pain medications. We have them pick them up before surgery and so that they're there. Um, then during the surgery, I do a, um, an injection throughout the whole knee. And I use multiple injections throughout that whole knee and really try to kind of diffuse the pain, the, the pain medication that I'm injecting um, during the surgery. And then I also use an adductor canal block for my knee replacements. On my hips, I do a I do a hip I do an anterior hip replacement, um, and then I'm also putting these pain pumps on Q pumps in um, just set it and I set it right on the capsule actually for anterior hip replacements. We were trying to figure out where to actually put these, and I started putting them there, and we've had great results with that. So when we talk about the knee, I had um, anesthesiologists place um, adductor canal blocks for a long time. Uh, we would do on Q pumps, and they'd have those in for about three days or so, three to five days. Um, and then a lot of the anesthesiologists started going to single shot. Um, they'd use some of the longer lasting uh, bupivacanes um, with the single shot. And then I, I switched to placing my own catheters. And, and we can talk about that a little bit more too. But um, so now my patients all get um, an on-cue uh, catheter to, in the adductor canal for knee replacements. They get an on-cue. Um, if we're doing a hip replacement, they get an on-cue pump that sits right over the, the uh, capsule. For hip replacements, they also get the shots during the surgery, and then they also do get um, pain medications for post-op if needed. And we've been looking at our results. What we found is that we really had a decrease in narcotic usage. So I have a research assistant in my office that calls those patients every two days, and they basically have a whole pain journal that they follow. And uh, and we've really seen a decrease in narcotic usage. I mean, we have we had before we started using these, we had about 10 to 11% of patients that wouldn't take narcotics. And now we've almost doubled that. Um, and so we've got about 20% of patients that uh, are just over 20% of patients that are not taking any narcotics after a hip or knee replacements. I mean, that, that's got to be really encouraging to see. Uh, I mean, I think in the backdrop of the entire conversation around pain management is sort of the opioid crisis, of course, but uh, to, to see the that that level of narcotic use come down. That's really, got to be really nice to see. Uh, absolutely. And because it's not just narcotics. I mean, obviously the opioid crisis and thankfully in my practice, I haven't, I don't have, I've never had, I don't have one patient that I, that I know of anyway, that has gotten an addiction to narcotics from this surgery or had any, um, you know, overdoses or anything from these surgeries from post-operative uh, narcotic usage in my practice anyway. But I think that there's, 
it, you know, there's a couple things with that. Could their grandkids get it? Could other people get it? I think that there's potential for that as well. But I think there's so many negatives to narcotics. And that's, you know, I think that's probably a discussion for a different time. But, you know, you look at just the mental mental status of patients after they take narcotics, especially some of our older patients, it really, I think, throws them for a loop. Um, and then, you know, the constipation issues and then a lot of these other things, these narcotics are not benign when they take them postoperatively. Yeah, let's talk more then about the 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 adductor canal block, which uh, this this might tie in some. Um, yeah. Can you talk more about your your reasons um, behind sort of adopting the the the, the surgeon placed adductor canal block versus you know um, having the anesthesiologist team place the catheter? Can can you sort of talk about your your rationale there? Yeah, absolutely. So mine may be similar to other people's stories, maybe a little bit different. So the hospital that I was at. Um, for a long time, we were, the, the anesthesiologists were able to place the adductor canal blocks in the recovery room. Um, and then they switched their protocols and said, well, it's a procedure. It shouldn't be done in the recovery room. It should be done in the operating room. So that was kind of one of the first triggers for me to start trying to figure out some other way to do it. Because, you know, when you're trying to do four or five joints, um, you know, in one room, and you're trying to flip that room and trying to get, you know, get the turnover crew in and, and all that stuff. When you add even real, you know, real fast anesthesiologists, you're still talking five, maybe 10 minutes by the time they get the ultrasound and place that catheter. And, and I have some really good anesthesiologists that I work with. Um, but it really took a lot of time. And you're talking, you know, in a, in a day of four or five joints, you know, in that room, you're talking, an, you know, an additional, say, 50 minutes, 40, 50 minutes of uh for your day. And as surgeons, it's, you know, just drives you crazy waiting for that, uh, that room to turn over anyway. So, um, that was one of the catalysts for me to start looking at different, different ways to place this. Uh, another one was we had some, some anesthesiologists that came in or that were there that I would end up in my room that didn't know how to place the, the blocks. And, uh, and so I just, you know, there's some, some that were struggling with it. And I finally just said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to kind of bail on this for a little while. Um, and so I stopped using them at the main hospital for a long time and, um, I just didn't see as good a pain control. So then, um, I'd been looking and looking and, and talking to, um, my rep for the on queue. And he said, you know, there's this, there's a surgeon down Alabama that was starting to put these in surgeon place. And so I got a hold of him and we talked and, you know, first I thought, man, I don't know if I know the anatomy well enough to place this. And basically you just, you, you go up the, the adductor canal, but retrograde, so just proximal to the medial femoral condyle, there's a little veil of tissue. And once you're in there, that just slides right up to, um, right up the adductor canal. And people worry about piercing, you know, the nerve or piercing one of the vessels. And, and in reality, there's, there's a space that it just slides right up. And so, you know, I started, I thought, you know, let me just see if I can feel that. And I felt it and I, and then I started putting a shot in there. And then I thought, you know what, I think I can place this catheter. I, you know, I watched some, talked to him, did some cadaver lab work, and, and, uh, and, and then we started placing them. And it's been really, really nice. It takes me about, about three minutes to place it and to secure it um, on the knee. And, uh, and they go home the, uh, the, the, with the pump. The pump lasts about four to five days. And, uh, and they get great, great pain relief with that. So it's been really, really good for my practice. I do it both at the surgery center um, and at the uh, the main hospital. Um, I, it doesn't matter who my anesthesiologist is anymore. We don't have to worry about you know length of time for the turnovers. Um, and you know, for at our hospital, I manage all my po- patients postoperatively for pain. I don't have a pain team that does that. And so I really know what, 
uh, I'm able to predict quite a bit how my patients are going to do postoperatively with the uh, regimen that we have, which is great. Yeah, I appreciate you walking us through that, Dr. Jameson. And, and so you, you mentioned before as well sort of that um, you know, your, your pain management protocol has allowed some uh, narcotic use uh, reduction among patients. But are there any other uh, outcomes, uh, patient outcomes, or, or uh, ways that this protocol has impacted your practice that, that you could share that, that you haven't uh, touched on already? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is um, the – kind of that relationship that we have or, or the research and stuff that is going into um, this perioperative pain. I think, again, because of the opioid crisis, but not just because of that, but because I think our patients deserve to be able to have these surgeries and not have, you know, significant amount of pain. Companies like Avenos that are really putting a lot of time into this um, and effort and research, I think is really important for surgeons to give their feedback to and to look into um, they're doing a lot of different things. They, there's a, they're coming out with a, a, basically a program called Pain Block Pro that patients can go, can get on, and they, and they, there's a whole um, list of different things that they can do. But they basically are able to, we're able to see on the, at the, at the physician's office how patients are doing as the patients are putting in um, how they're feeling every day, how many narcotics they're having to do, and, and really they can kind of tailor that for the patient. Um, and then it can trigger towards the physician if somebody's struggling in certain way, you know, in any way or needing, you know, more things. And so there's there's a lot of things that I think that companies are doing, but especially with Avenos, is they're I think they're really leading the the field in this perioperative pain control um, with these blocks. But um, I think that the impact for us has been pretty significant. You know, one of the one of the main calls that we were getting beforehand was for narcotic refills. You know, we, and I think that's, I don't think we're, you know, it's novel for us. I think the most practices, that's what we get a lot of is refilling pain medications and pain medications and pain medications. And even for the patients that have had to take pain medicines postoperatively, um, we've seen a significantly decrease in, in how many refills that p- patients are needing afterwards. They're using a lot less um, pain medications postoperatively. And so it's really significantly decreased the impact on our, on our practice here. Um, and has helped with patient outcomes. The, you know, the, when, when they're not on those narcotics, I think their head's in a better place. I think they're able to do some of their um, focus a little bit more, even do their physical therapy a little bit better. Um, having that, that local pain control rather than having a narcotic kind of general um, full body, um, you know, narcotic uh, pain control uh, on board. So I think those are the things where it's really helped our practice and, and, and really helped these patients with their outcomes. Well, Dr. Jamison, it's been a been a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experience with, with our listeners. It, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I think this is a, an area that's really, really important, not just for the present, but also for the future. So I think uh, it's a great conversation and, uh, and looking forward to having more of them in the future. Absolutely. Also want to thank our podcast sponsor, Avenos Medical. Listeners, you can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.